I learned that I had to balance out the rest of my life. And that meant that I wasn't just Rosie the surgeon or the Rosie like this academic. It wasn't just that. I'm a whole person and I needed to allow that whole person to grow. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of The Medical Matrix. I am with my co-host, uh, Dr. Erica Fisk, and our guest today, Dr. Fred Lamb. So we're doing a, something a little bit different today, and we're talking about our experiences in the world of surgery. And I've often had conversations with both Fred and Erica separately on the evolution of our careers and how we defined success in the past and how we define it today. I've had fairly superficial and hilarious conversations with both of them, but also very deep philosophical ones, right? And some of them have gotten pretty meta. And I just feel that we've all had some fairly intense journeys and learned quite a few lessons along the way. And I thought we could share those. And again, these are really our experiences. And of course, there are people who may not agree with the conclusions we have come to for ourselves, but they may resonate with some others. So welcome, Erica and Fred. Thanks for joining in today and having this discussion. Thanks for having me back. So Fred, tell me what inspired you to take the route of becoming a doctor and, and choosing medicine as your career path. So my mom and dad are both nurses. My mom worked as adult daycare center care nurse for uh, seniors with dementia. So one of my first summer jobs in high school was doing some volunteering with her over the summer, working with seniors with dementia. And that eventually became kind of a pretty stable summer job for me. And I became very fascinated with the concept of neurodegeneration and Alzheimer's disease and the related dementias. And that really strove, you know, kind of piqued my interest. And, and that led me to pursuing a PhD in neuroscience where uh, studying Alzheimer's disease and the disease process of neurodegeneration. And I was at this fork in the road where I had a lot of fun and learned a lot during my PhD, but then was also, I was missing out on understanding the clinical part of the disease and, and the ability to be more hands-on and care for, for people with neurodegenerative and neuroscience type problems. And and so that's why I um, decided to pursue medicine after my PhD. It kind of like brought me down that route of neuroscience. And then I needed to make a decision as to whether or not I wanted to do neurology versus neurosurgery. And I never really, I don't think I was one of those, oh, you know, I'm definitely going to be a neurosurgeon from day one. Uh, it, was, it was definitely a very circuitous route that led me to pursuing neurosurgery. And I'm very lucky to, to have mentors along the way that guided me through the process to becoming a neurosurgeon. Even today, I still have a lot of great mentors that always give me advice on navigate the surgical path that we are all in. So, Erica, how about you? So I have a little bit less of an inspirational story. For me, my mother is an anesthesiologist. She was born in Mexico. She came, immigrated to the United States when she was eight. She was the first person to go to college. And then basically school and education were the ways that she 
knew how to be successful and knew that she could get out of the poverty and the circumstances that she was born into. So education was always the strongest thing that she would promote for her children. And so my father also came from a poor environment growing up. He was one of six. They were farmers and he was a PhD in anatomy. They actually met over a dead body in, in medical school, they met in the gross anatomy lab. And so both of my parents were like highly educated. And so being around that all the time, that was expected. You know, I didn't have the typical, I have a sports injury or you know, what Fred had mentioned, you know, we have a, a sick family member or something that inspired me to become healer or physician in that sense. It was just what was expected of how are we supposed to progress? Like you are going to follow this path and there weren't really any other options. So I got on the course, this whole pre-med agenda, and I was actually a fine arts major first three years of my college. And I realized that I couldn't do three hours of art studio and three hours of organic chem lab. And three hours. so I, one of them had to go and my mom's like, you're not going to be a fine arts person. Like, are you like the worst, most unsuccessful career path that you could ever take? Like the only way that you can be successful is to be a doctor. What are you talking about? So I did all the things and I checked all the boxes and I applied to medical school and I was very fortunate to have got in. But it was very much not like this, oh, I've always wanted to be a doctor and I don't want to sound bratty about it, but I kind of fell into it because of my circumstances and the expectations that were set on to me. And I was very lucky that in medical school, I also had wonderful mentors that guided me to a career path that made sense. Um, and for me, that's orthopedic surgery. I was always very much love working with my hands. I like to solve problems. I like things that maybe aren't so complicated to figure out, but complicated to fix. And so um, orthopedics was a very good fit for me. And that's how ortho became my career path. So I wasn't, I don't have this great inspirational story, but that was what success meant to my family was that you were going to become educated and you're not going to rely on anybody to help take care of you. You'll never rely on another person, a man, woman, anything like you will be able to be self-sufficient because you're educated. And that was, that's what was going to be. It was creed. So I think mine is almost like a mix of both Fred and Erica's experience. So I ended up choosing this path because I also had two immigrant parents and they kind of came to Canada with a few dollars and kind of worked hard. But the thing that they always used to instill in us was the educational component, too. It was sort of your freedom to a better life, right, to a successful life. I never even assumed that I wouldn't be going to university or some higher level education. So that that was definitely one of the reasons why I ended up uh, choosing this path. But the other one also was that I was I was one of those kids who also had childhood asthma and a cousin who had type 1 diabetes. I could see the limitation that health conditions had in having a normal life and and I don't like to see people in pain or limited in any way. So I think I'm kind of wired to be a healer. I was really fascinated by the human body and how it works. So it just sort of seemed natural. I considered other careers, but I think that always still felt like that true calling. I also think I was conditioned really early to become an orthopedic surgeon because all I can remember my childhood toys were often doctor kits or tool kits. So <laughs> I think I think there was some sort of subconscious thing going on there. That means my son's going to be a monster jam truck driver. That's the there you go. Be careful what toys they play with, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. And then I got into med school and again, didn't know I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. One day I ended up going to the OR with one of the orthopods who invited us to kind of see what he did. Right. And I remember we were doing an open shoulder case. I'm holding these retractors and he looks to me and he says, Rosie, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm like, I don't know, sports medicine. It seemed like the natural choice. So he goes, well, do you want to fix the problem or do you just want to diagnose it? And I'm like, oh, fair point. Right. So, so anyway, I ended up getting a little bit more exposed to it. And then I had mentors along the way and just a few circumstances that kind of came up a bit serendipitously that led me down further into that sort of hand surgery. I ended up doing this random elective in Paris at the Hand Institute, and I liked it. It was great. I had a wonderful mentor there, Dr. LeClaire, very, very well-renowned female orthopedic surgeon who then contacted Stanford and said, oh, hey, you know, I have somebody here who'd want to do an elective with you guys. So I ended up as a student working with the Stanford Department of Hand Surgery and having another group of wonderful mentors that really inspired me to take that route and to do it under the umbrella of orthopedics made the most sense to me. I think it's just all very interesting because if anybody were to look at any one of us and our CV or resume and how does one define success? And I think it's very personal what success means to people because it doesn't mean anything to me to be the most published, the most recognized, all of those, those things that there are a lot of people who strive out for or have to feel that they need to accomplish. But when that starts to be the driving force behind a career path, then nothing will ever be enough. Because there's always another paper, there's always another discovery, another patient to fix or another problem, and you're going to be chasing your tail endlessly. And so I think success is just such an interesting topic because it is such a personal thing for all of us, no matter what the profession is. And so just being a physician or a surgeon, it's not enough, in my opinion. But that's, again, that's a very personal thing. Well, I think being the academic surgeon of the three of us currently, you know, you definitely <laughs> hit the nail on the spot there in terms of one paper just needs to the next paper. And it's all about, you know, your, your, Freddie, your, where do you see yourself in five years? Please <laughs> tell us your success pathway. So you continue to achieve and achieve when will it be enough? <laughs> uh, I think that's the whole, the machinery of the academic career. I think you you really kind of hit the nail on the spot, Erica. Like, I mean, it, what is enough? Like, what is ever enough? And, you know, Rosie and I were talking about this last night. Um, you know, I was like, oh, well, you know, I think I maybe published, I don't know, like four or five papers this year. And is that enough? You know, is that successful? And what journals were they published in? You know, or was the factor? And what does it all mean? And for me, when I look at the body of that I've done it, I define success through the mentors who guided me through that work and the colleagues and the support that I had to do this. And, you know, nothing is ever done in a silo as much as my ego would like to think, oh, it was all my idea. It was all my work. And none of it is. At the end of the day, if you were to sit down and think about it, you know, just, you know, I don't own it. You know, the success of having a paper published in a high impact factor journal wasn't because, oh, I thought of this idea and it was mine. Although sometimes when you're in the weeds of getting something done, you may put the blinders on and say, oh, like I invested so much energy into this. And so the, the fruits of my, of my labor is my success, like the first off the paper, whatever. But 
when I reflect on it, really, it's because of a large group of people, friends and colleagues and mentors who were there and supported me through this for each of these publications to be successfully uh, put out. And then now that I'm more in a role of being able to mentor and guide the next generation of academic scientists or clinicians, I'm becoming more and more aware of their success is my success. And it's something that I don't really think about until I had an instance where a young pre-med student and not even a direct report to myself, but she came up to me one day and she was like, I just want you to know that your story is so inspiring to me and it drives, it's driving me to become a neurosurgeon or wanting to become a neurosurgeon. I looked at her as you got 20 years to spend of your life, you know, to chase the path. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's a long, as you both know. It's yeah, you have to want it. You have to you want have it. To, you have to want it. Yeah, there has to be an inner drive that there really isn't any other path for you to like fully, I think, embrace it and not to have regrets or, or feel put out by the sacrifices. Because those sacrifices are pretty real for, well, most of your 20s, for sure, and part of your 30s. And that's just the reality of it. I remember sitting in med school, one of those evening seminars where a bunch of neurosurgeons was was giving a talk to let us know as med students what the life of a neurosurgeon entailed. And they were all male. They were all male neurosurgery staff. And for the female med students in the audience that was there and interested, the response was very, was very sobering. It was like Rosie said, it would take most of your primary productive years to go through med school, go through a six to seven year residency, go through a two year fellowship. And then with your, in certain parts of the world, you may not be guaranteed a job at the end of it. So the job security may not always be there. And you've invested essentially, you think about your undergrad, med school, residency, fellowship, that's 10, 15 years of your life, your prime years of your life. It's so interesting to me because we get the opportunity to work with a lot of people and and post-college kids who are on the medical path for some way. They want to be a PA, they want to be a med student. And it's so insanely competitive about getting in to those programs. And I think what you're saying is so valid because the sacrifices that it does take, I'm not sure that all those people have been able to look at in a realistic way. What is this really going to mean for my life coming up? And they have all these questions that the med school applications ask, like, hey, why do you want to be a doctor? And like, what's going to make this career path and career choice for you? And I find so many, it was like, I just want to help people. I just want to help people. I want to, they have, they've tore their ACL or they have a story like you and I want to help people. And I remember being in this process when you're trying to be encouraged to to go on and do make the commitment to be a, a doctor. And I, I had a friend of my mother's that I was shadowing one day and he ran a cancer lab down in IU at the academic center. I was like, oh, I just want to help people. And he goes, you can help people driving a bus. And I'm just like, crap. And then he goes, you want to help me go get me a cup of coffee? I was like, okay, then I'm not sure if that's just because I was a female, if he was just trying to make, and he certainly impacted me because I remember it still, is that like, yeah, I actually could help people driving a bus. And that in itself, it would be, I successfully brought whoever to work or to school today. And that's just another facet of what can be seen as successful. 
Like, do you, after all these things that you've accomplished in this fantastic career and publishing papers and being this academic person and mentor, do you feel like you have achieved success? Do you see yourself as a successful person? I think I'm still building. I'm still in a very early part of my career as a surgeon because I, I did a very securitous route and actually took a large gap from my surgical career after fellowship and went back into basic science. Definitely my path was or is very atypical. And the successes that I have is more based on the mentorship that I have received. And my current position now, I see myself being in a building phase of my career. And if I look at the pages of my CV, and if I can define that as being successful, then sure, that inner insecurity of always asking myself, am I doing enough? Am I being enough? What is the next thing that I can be achieving either in the OR or taking care of patients or doing more translational research? Will that lead to more success? That's always something I'm battling within myself. It's a question I ask myself every day. Is there an endpoint of I will be successful when I'm you know, full professor or whatever it is, do you have something in your mind that like, yes, once I get that full, I will feel like I've made it? I think when I find that balance between having built a successful practice where I can say that I am delivering high quality service to my patients and being able to adequately treat their disease or the processes that they're coming to find me. And then also being able to mentor the up-and-comers, the students, the trainees, and have that balance in my life, then that would be my definition of success. Not necessarily am I publishing science, nature, or cell papers, or running the clinical trials, or yes, I am, I am driving towards, hoping to drive towards that, but is that really the definition of success? I think, Fred, and maybe it's because we talk about this kind of stuff all the time, and I've known you for so long. You have a gift as a clinician and definitely as a surgeon. I've seen it in real life. And I think that's one area that you haven't had enough time to explore, given that you went into the basic science area. And of course, you've achieved a lot of success there and stuff. But I feel like you're really you're really just embarking on that journey right now for yourself, going down that clinical path and then seeing if that's the route where you'll feel fully validated inside with what you're doing. Thank you. I think providing service and especially during this time of the pandemic has really hit how grateful I am that I can practice medicine and do this and help people out there. And we're living through a pandemic right now, and there's global challenges in delivering quality healthcare to all our patients. And really, for me, success is when, during this trying time, that a patient reaches out and says, thank thank you for being there to be able to provide this service and, and take care of me or my loved ones. And that, I think, is above and beyond publication or whatever. That is why we became physicians. Oh, 100%. All of us know surgical residencies can be pretty trying. It's intense for a reason, but I'm sure everybody at some point comes to a day where they're just like, oh my God, do I want to keep doing this? And I had one of those days, I remember in fourth year where I was, I don't know, this is now my what, 
10th year of school. <laughs> but I, I really questioned all the sacrifices you know, that you make. And this was in my fourth year of ortho residency. And, and I, I think I was just so tired. And then I remember even talking to one of my staff about it, which I normally would never do, but I, I did. And he was a very supportive staff member. And then as I left the office, I went up to the Department of Surgery to go collect some mail. The secretary had said, hey, you've got some stuff here. And it turned out there was a letter in there from a patient that I had treated about three years prior, like in my junior year. And I had spent a lot of time in the ER doing this, ended up doing like a revision amputation on multiple fingers for him and stuff. And anyway, so he and the family wrote three years later saying, thank you so much for all your time and attention to me that day. Like I'm back to all my normal activities and doing well. And we just wanted to send you this letter to thank you. And it was just like, it was that moment when you needed to hear that what you were doing is important and everything like that. Your validation. That validation, that person, that very personal moment that you have with this one patient that tells you that you're appreciated, you're valued, and like all the sacrifices that you're making, all the time that you're spending is important. What I think is surprising is that you hear have three surgeons here, and what I'm hearing consistently is that we all have we're all achievers. We've all been on this path. We've all been the top of our class. We're getting com- compared to the, the smartest and brightest and hardest working people. And you put yourself in these categories and it's always difficult to know whether you're doing enough or accomplishing enough. Or I don't know how common that is to have three very successful on paper people coming in and just telling you, I deal with self-doubt and have moments where I question my basically career path and my work ethic. And we still question all that because we're, where I think we're always so, we hold ourselves to a very high standard of what we can achieve. And it's very challenging, I think, to relay that to somebody who hasn't been through this process because we've all, we've done so much, but when will it ever be enough? And how can we? still be questioning whether we're doing enough. You know, I just, and so I think it's because we're all introspective and always holding ourselves to the standard of being high achieving and being successful. And I don't think that stops just at our profession. And I can come and speak to you from a personal standpoint, being I have two young kids. I just passed the boards. I just moved across country. I'm in between jobs. I'm technically unemployed in spite of starting the contract. And I am in this realm of still having intellectual conversation with you guys who are still working and still achieving and don't have as many distractions as I do. I'm still like talking to my co-fellows and they're sending out cases as they're doing. And I can't help but feel like I'm failing professionally at this moment because I am not on that course anymore. I had to pause doing publications and research and new technologies because my party shifted to having and starting a family. And so I think that even if I were to compare myself as a female to other orthopedics, that might be like, oh, she doesn't take her job seriously, or she is not a true player in the field and is never going to be head of the AOS or whatever. I might be dinged because 
that's what I chose to do. And so does that make me less of a successful person? That's something that I personally struggle with because my attention is divided. And I think you're right. We all do this. We all try to achieve. And I think we're just wired that way. But I don't think that you should ever think that about yourself. To me, you taking this pause and putting time into your family, I think that is such an important part of life. And life isn't just about our careers. I ended up doing something that was, sounded crazy to <laughs> the people around me at the time. Like I finished my trauma fellowship. And you guys know about this when I moved to Hawaii and lived in a tree basically house. <laughs> lived, I've lived in a tree, yeah, and just did at surfed every day. But it was a pause in my life. And I had all those things like you have these doubts. Like when I was leaving, my my staff was like, Are you crazy? Like you can stay here, make some money, and then just get more clinical experience before you start really getting out there. But that pause sometimes in life is necessary because it allows you to reset and then reprioritize. Because how we define successes in our life changes, right? There's going to be an evolution and there's going to be eras where something's important and then not so important in a different era of our life. I had come to a point in my life where emotionally I was a little bit depleted, right? And I woke up one morning with this real clear sense that I had to go to Hawaii. I can't even tell you why. I ended up meeting somebody who ended up being a mentor and he, he taught me how to surf, but he was more a mentor in life and stuff. And one of the things he said to me, and this still sits with me every day, is that we're high achievers and we expect to achieve everything by a certain time period in our life because that's what we see in the society, that's what we see in society or with our peer group, wherever they are. And so people constantly judge you from the outside thinking that you need to fit in this box and this is what your life should look like because you're in this sort of career path. But the reality is that we all are on our own journey. And this is the way I've been defining success is that you are listening to your inner guide and basically living out your life and having this journey based on what's actually right for you, not what's right in the eyes of society, in the eyes of the people around you. So one of the things he said to me was like, you should never, you shouldn't expect that you have your career right here or your relationships or families or everything. It should be all at this age or in this time frame. Everything happens when it's right for you. So for you at this time point, I feel like you're given this great time, like where you don't have to work. You get to actually settle in. You actually get to have real time with your family and you get to build an experience with that unit, with that family unit, which is a really important part of who you are and what your life is meant to be. Those, like the career successes will still continue to happen if you choose them to happen. But sometimes this kind of time is just necessary so you can build out the other parts of your life. I think you, you said something really important in there that is always a good thing to remember is that it's important not to compare to others because your success of your life is totally separate. And even though you see other people achieving whatever and on a different time frame, that doesn't take away any of your own achievements or validity or whatever you guys want to call it, because I just think that's the biggest point that I get from what you're saying is that it's really detrimental to everything to compare yourself to others because the only person that 
that you can compare yourself is yourself. You're end of one, right? You have to be able to be clicking and vibing in your own life on your own time frame and the contentment of whatever it is that you're doing or achieving has to be in line with your own goals. And I think that's like the success for all people. You don't have to be a doctor or whatever is that you have to be content in the life that you're living. Yeah. Yeah. And also, again, just to remember that people will always have opinions on what you should be doing and where you should be. And you can always take those opinions. And a lot of times people are just well-meaning, right? And want to help you. But at the end of the day, those are based on their own experiences and based on how they, what their value judgment of life is. You have to go by your own value judgments and what's right for you. This is also crazy what's going on right now, because this is why social media is such a big problem for young kids. Everybody's comparing each other all the time to everybody. And I even look on social media to other orthopods that are posting like their amazing cases. And I'm just like, man, I think that's really awesome. But that also makes me feel crappy about myself because that's so cool. But I think it's really important to that to take it in stride because you start doing that and you're just going to go down a rabbit hole. And it's not like physicians don't have enough. It's an endless rabbit hole. It's a challenging thing to continue to remind yourself, especially when we in this particular profession are comparing ourselves to all like the most highly achieving people there are. You know, so it can be like a, a constant slap in your face, like you're looking at Kim Kardashian's picture on your fridge every day. I'm like, man, I really want that. Well, we hear more and more about in the mainstream now is this imposter syndrome. As we all strive to advance in our careers, there's actually a large part of our inside that feels that we don't deserve it or we're, we're faking it and the imposter in our own skin. And it could really affect the, the well-being of how we view ourselves outwardly because there's always these metrics of success that we're compared against. And I think I've been really lucky in my career so far to have very senior mentors who you know, have gone through it all. And they've been kind enough to dispel these pearls of wisdom based on their own experiences to in their path to success. Oh, I wish I had done, for example, spent more time in Hawaii, or I wish I had had my kids earlier. There's all these things, all these things that people who are outwardly successful don't necessarily say. And I've been very lucky to have had these mentors and still have these mentors who impart this type of kind of you know wisdom on and kind of keeps keeps me in check. Yeah, I think it's just what everybody feels lacking in some way. That's what you know, like they may may not outwardly say it, but they feel less in a different type of way than you or I or whoever might feel because we all define success very differently. And I think that to be content is to have the idea of what success means to you individually at hand so that you don't get stuck comparing yourself to other metrics of success. It's okay, what does it mean to be successful to me? And am I in line with that? And that's the best I can do. I can't control that. I can't control other people. I'm not controlling the other metrics. Do I care about those other metrics? And if you do, then yes, that's fine. I mean, those metrics are there because a lot of people care about them, but it's not the same for me. It shouldn't be a consistent message. And so I think for me to feel 
and be successful and how I define success is that am I vibing with the person that I want to be? And if it's to be a mother and a community surgeon, whatever that is, am I in line and, and vibing and clicking on those cylinders so that I can look myself in the mirror and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm content. I'm successful on my own metric. And that's all that matters. And that's hard to do because you get all this feedback all the time. And that social media yeah. thing is crazy. It'll drive you insane. And you know, we're not doing just normal work. So that compounded with the pressures of our normal jobs can be maddening. This physician suicide rate is you know, higher than ever. And probably the suicide rate in teens who everything is because all those other metrics is like, why aren't you doing more or being more or achieving more? And I don't think in our society that that gets healthy in any realm for any age group. And so you have to shrink it and be like, okay, what does it mean to me? And I think what's not encouraged is people having a healthy relationship with themselves. That's where it all starts. It's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to talk about things, talk about feelings, especially in this field, Um, and to be very real about things because there's that constant judgment It can prevent you from just taking a step back from it all and ignoring it all and just really finding yourself, right? And like we said before, to be content with it. I think that ultimately you have to have an authentic relationship with yourself. And that's the key to authenticity everywhere else in your life. And that's sometimes one of the hardest things to try to achieve because it takes a lot of work. And sometimes opening up that Pandora's box can be pretty scary to a lot of people because you're faced with a lot of things you never had to think about or you just can't distract yourself with your day-to-day distractions like social media or whatever. Being your authentic, true self. And I think once you're in, also in line with that, I think being female orthopedic surgeons, we fit into a very small percentage. And that percentage is growing. And we, I was very lucky to have, you know, a lot of female staff mentors at residency program. Orthrosia, I know that you were not. But even still, I felt like I needed to act and behave a certain way. And I can actually remember during my internship, late in my internship year, I was in our traumatologist room and all the guys were joking around. And I had a joke, <laughs> but it was giving one of the guys a little a little trash talk. And I felt so awkward, but that was my authentic self. And I stopped and I was like, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to be perceived as a certain way or this, the girl or whatever, someone that was speaking out of line or whatnot. And I remember making a decision at that moment as if I cannot be my authentic self. And I was like, I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my time here. And so I said my joke and it was like, oh, dang. <laughs> so it, and, but then it was like my rite of passage. I said something, I can't remember the joke, it would have been a better story. But like you make those decisions because you think you have to fit into a certain box and be a certain way, behave a certain way. And the only way that actually made me happy was to push the boundary and, and ruffle feathers. And I got to be myself, which made my time during residency much more enjoyable because I just, you have to make that decision. You're not being an imposter or whatnot. You're just, you're being, you get to be your, you be your authentic self. I did the same thing for a couple of years. I didn't really, 
I didn't really say a lot of jokes back or just because I was sort of like, I should just stay quiet because I think I need to just present myself a certain way. Then I just got comfortable because it's the same thing as you, right? I'm like, this is who I am, whatever. I'm going to say this off-color joke. And I did. And I remember (laughs) the staff guy turned to me and he said this with a smile on his face because he actually really enjoyed this. But he was just sort of, do you talk to your mom and dad with that mouth? (laughs) But that was a moment where I was like, okay, I can now say whatever I want. It was a little bit of a liberating moment, but it took me two years, though, to get to that point where I felt... Like, I think I felt I proved myself enough to these guys that I belong here in a way that then I felt comfortable. And just to your other point, I didn't in my residency program have any other female residents around me or anything. But I will say this, though, when I was in my medical school time, that was when I worked with two female hand surgeons, both orthopedic surgeons. And I have to say, in a way, they were the reasons why I felt I could do this job and still be very ladylike. These are beautiful women who just were very elegant in the way they presented themselves, but they were orthopedic surgeons. So I'd always look to them and modeled myself after them. So now we're in this very unique interview where I am in the presence of two female surgeons who have you know, gone to the best schools and done it all and whatnot. So what kind of pearls of wisdom would you impart on future female surgical trainees or female med students or or undergrads or people who just come to you and say, hey, how did you guys do it? How did you do to and and what is it what is different as female surgeons do you think is different in terms of like my typical male surgeon path to that? Wow, that's a lot of questions that is hard to answer. <laughs> I think the biggest thing just hitting home again, that to, to not be afraid to be your own person or feeling that you need to be something that you're not to fit in. And our paths were certainly different because there's always going to be the prejudice that women can't be orthopedists. But people are going to make this jokes and be able to be resilient and to know that you can do it all. And it doesn't have to look like everybody else's timeline or playbook on how things should look or how you need to behave and you shouldn't wear a skirt or heels or like you get to be yourself and people are always going to judge you whether you're male female black white you know whatever and at some point the best answer is always just to feel comfortable being yourself because you can do it all as a female and it may not look exactly perfectly tied up in a bow and it's really messy sometimes, especially if you want to have a family. But it's certainly people are capable of a lot and women can have it all also. And what I get to say to all of my male counterparts is, yeah, I can do your job with heels and nine months pregnant. And you will never understand what that is. And you would die if you had to do really good stuff. You know, like, because it's ridiculous. I'm not whining about it. You get to make your own decisions for your life and don't let anybody tell you you can't do something that you want to do. And because there's always a path to achieve your desired outcome. And I think that's true of all medical subspecialties. Neurosurgery is probably up there on the hardest. (laughs) So I feel for that young female, but I'm sure that, that she 
felt worse with people discouraging her. Yes, it's going to maybe be harder for a female who wants to have a family or wants to have certain other personal goals, whatnot. But to be discouraged on top of that is just compounds it. And I think that don't let anybody tell you what you can and cannot do because there's always a path. Yeah, I agree with Erica. It's strange to say sometimes, but I really felt like an underdog from where I came in my life, how I grew up, everything. But in a weird way, though, feeling that way, I still always felt like there was no reason why I still couldn't achieve what I wanted to do, because there's a certain vision that I had for my life, and I wasn't going to let anybody tell me that I couldn't do it. And so I think there was a lot of hard work. There were a lot of setbacks. But I think... I always had an inner feeling and an inner voice that just kept me on that path to reaching this like overall goal because it just still felt like the right path. And there's a lot of trials and tribulations as a, to getting there. But I would say in the last few years, what's happened is that I became more balanced. I think for a while, in order to achieve my goals academically, professionally, and feeling like I was succeeding, my life became very unbalanced. But I learned that I had to balance out the rest of my life. And that meant that I wasn't just Rosie the surgeon or the Rosie like this academic. It wasn't just that. I'm a whole person and I needed to allow that whole person to grow. And so in the last few years, I've started to just really almost let go of the idea of what I thought my life needed to look like. It's like taking the ego out of everything and what feels right now. And I've started laying different pieces down for myself, which I never would have thought years ago when I was starting out my academic career or, or just my journey as a surgeon. I'm working part time for a hospital right now, but I have this startup between this podcast, right? So I've created this life that I never would have envisioned, but it's because I'm listening to that sort of inner voice that's saying, you got to grow all parts of you. So there's an academic side, but there's this creative side. There's the side that is just opening to life in general. And that to me is now more a definition of success because I'm really allowing myself to just fully be. It's not a matter of what I think I should be or what my ego was telling me I should be, but I'm just allowing my essential self to just reveal itself. And I'm okay with whatever time frame it's taking or whatever it's looking, even though it may not be typical. Before I felt like I needed to know what was happening in five months and a year or this or whatever, like you just felt like you need a little bit more control in the outcome. I feel like I almost don't need that anymore because I can see pieces falling into place where they need to in order to allow other pieces of the puzzle to just come into place. And so being able to look at life that way and being able to be comfortable in the discomfort sometimes of life is now my definition of success for myself. And again, I come back to that whole idea of that having that authentic relationship with yourself is that key to getting the authenticity everywhere else in your life. 
I think that's a good message for any, I think this started with a surgical uh, advice for pre-med students or for even females, but all just for people in general, mm-hmm. is to be able to really be present and really enjoy the experience because you start wishing away your life. Oh, I can't wait for residency to be over. I can't wait to start this. I can't wait to be the fellowship. I can't wait to my next rotation. I can't wait to not be on call. And you start wishing your life away. And if you can be content and be present in those chaotic moments where things may not be quite as fun because you're up at 2 a.m. going to the ER and it's snowing because you live in Indiana, be like, okay, like this is all my purpose and I this is what I am right now at this moment and to be content with that inner authentic self. Yeah, exactly. And I think when you're fully present within yourself, Life is pretty cool if you can just take each moment for what it is and not worry about the future because the future isn't here and and none of us know it. And so all we have is now. So Fred, how about you? I mean, again, it's the same thing. I've known you for so long and I've watched your evolution and I can say you're such a different person from when we were like in medical school and, and residency and yeah. How do you now define success compared to back then? If I really just sit and think about it, for me, it's the privilege of being able to do what I'm doing now. And that's when I just tear away all the, I don't want to call it the daily humdrum of our career, because there are a lot of daily humdrum things that that we do. It's really the privilege that I can actually do this, this job. and having the opportunity to be able to do this job. That to me is all the hard work and the trials and tribulations and all of that has led me to this point where I feel that I can perhaps really start being that. And I don't want to use the word all-rounded, but I just want to be able to build on all the training and whatnot and, and be able to say, okay, I think now I can say that I'm starting to be able to successfully treat patients and diagnose and operate and continue building. And for me, it's different because you guys have been in practice way longer than I have. You know, so I can't even call myself, I can't say that I'm a successful surgeon. I'm still very much in, in, in that building part of that, of my career, but I'm thankful and I'm very grateful that again, it's for me, it's, it's, training on the shoulders of giants and you guys have all trained on shoulders of giants and it's the successes of those giants that they have imparted their wisdom that allows me to be successful in my own little way on a day-to-day basis and also look at my failures and and my limitations and see past them that's that's what i keep looking back at or staying present in that moment of and moving forward in, in my career. And I just feel it's, it's a blessing that I can do this. I can wake up and get out of bed and do this. Your answer is actually very polished and nice, but that been true to you is, oh, but the privilege of being able to help people in the, with the gifts that you have is an amazing blessing. And I think that it's very good even to be reminded of that and that enthusiasm when I'm in this a little bit of a lull of not working right now. And I start my new job in January, but that is the feeling that 
they get you out of bed at 2 a.m. to go to the ER is because at the other end of that phone call is a person that you have the skills and training to help. And that truly is a privilege. I agree with both of you. I, I think that's one of the reasons why, like we said before, it's what keeps you going because there are real people and you're able to get them back to some productive means of life. And so I think all of us, we're all very grateful that we have the privilege to do that. And if that's one of the few things you hold on to in some of those days of doubt or whatever, it's a really great thing to hold on to that you're living a life of purpose. And that's all we ever like as human beings. That's what we look for. Everybody needs to feel a sense of purpose. And I think we're all doing that. But the thing is, I never think to ask sometimes that because I think I've known you for so long and I look at you outside of that label of neurosurgeon. I think I peel away the, the bravado and the armor that I put on every day. At, at the heart of it, it's I'm just human. I'm fallible, I'm flawed, and I'm a work in progress. And you're okay with it. And that's the beautiful part. And there are moments that I'm not okay with it. And there are moments that I'm okay with it. And that's that again is if I don't have these conversations with myself, then I don't think that I'm able to show the empathy to treat other human beings. This show is being produced by StudioPod. And for more information, go to studiopodsf.com.